quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me I, I thought we'd open with that in tribute to the late, great Frank Sinatra Jr. who passed away this week. It was kind of sad. It was sad. And what was cool is that he was still on tour, still working down in Florida. Greetings and salutations, podcast listeners. You've tuned into Booth One, our adventures in the art of lively conversation, exploring the worlds of art and popular culture, hopefully with humor, insight, and good taste. <laughs> oh boy, that's a challenge. <laughs> Alongside my constant companion, Roscoe, I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, wishing you all a happy spring and a happy Easter. Are you ready for the Easter bunny, Roscoe? Hippity hop hop. <laughs> I'd like to see you in an Easter Bunny costume, giving out yes. eggs. I'm reminded of the story we told, I think, on our first podcast about my my first claim to fame when my photo was on the front page of the Niles Daily Star, trying to find an Easter egg under a bush in front of the Niles Public Library. Right, this was Niles, Michigan. Niles, Michigan. But the camera was positioned such that all you saw of me in the photograph was my, even as a child, large rear end. Yes, we've <laughs> remarked on this, I think, last Easter, as a matter of fact. They keep coming back around. Uh, Mel, Easter was always my mother's favorite holiday, at least a religious-wise holiday. She enjoyed the baked ham, she enjoyed the hard-boiled eggs, she loved the whole Polish traditions that we had with kielbasa and uh, pierogies, and she just she just loved it. Did your family always have a lavish Easter celebration? You come from uh, a fairly religious background. Yes, yes. Your, your we family did. were Trappist monks. He <laughs> came from a family of Trappist monks. No, my my father was a minister, so it was you know I think he went to church about five. To five times in the week leading up to Easter. It was <laughs> always on Thursday. Monday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> Good Friday. Sad Saturday. <laughs> Easter Sunday. And of course, I was always obsessed with candy. And I would get up in the middle of the night to check for the Easter baskets to make sure they had come. And one year, my mother, who I assume was actually the Easter bunny, decided to split up the candy. So there was in two different, each of us got two different Easter baskets placed in different places, mm -hmm. but I didn't understand this. And I thought I had been short shrifted. <laughs> so I stole hollow chocolate crucifixes <laughs> from my sister's Easter baskets and put them in mine. Well, if you weren't going to hell for the other things I know yes. you've done in life, you're definitely going for that. I know. I'll, and I'll see you there. Right. Do you remember a story about the teacher we had. We had Dr. Ficka in college. And this was a, a, a drama teacher we had who taught acting and theater history and other things like that. Dr. Yeah. Dr. John Ficka. Mm -hmm. Still, I, I don't think he's teaching anymore. No, but he's, he's still alive. But he, his favorite Easter story was that one year he went to a, a lavish chocolate shop in downstate Illinois, and they had the Last Supper in chocolate except that Jesus was in white chocolate. <laughs> and the, the clerk said, may I help you? And he said, yes, who gets to eat Jesus? <laughs> and, and shockingly, she walked away from him. You know, I bet that chocolate store on Wells that we walked past just recently, I bet you could get a uh, chocolate uh, last supper there. The, the fudge pot. The fudge pot. One of, one of Chicago's called. great treasures. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> and I bet they'll make you anything. They'll probably make you cream-filled crucifixes. <laughs> Which is very hard to say, by the way. It is. Hey, and my friend, speaking of crucifixes or throwing oneself on the cross, my friend Carly Fiorina is back in the news. Yes. <laughs> Just when you think. <laughs> Just, she just won't go away. She, so she pops up endorsing Senator Ted Cruz for president. And now she's on the road doing town hall meetings. And appearing and with him at, at rallies and things. It's unbelievable. She's like, she's like HP, the company, which should have died years ago, but just won't die. And they keep putting out second break copiers <laughs> and, and paper. Well, the whole Republican Party is, of course, <laughs> in, in such turmoil. And, you know, you've heard the uh, pundits and the politicos on TV and on the radio saying this could be the end, the death of the Republican Party, the, the party of Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Um, which was fairly, it was fairly, fairly new when Lincoln was elected under the auspices of the Republican Party and stood for other things back in the 1850s. As you know, the symbol of the Republican Party uh, is an elephant. 
symbol for the Democratic Party is a donkey or an ass. An ass. You might as well say. Well, I have the perfect place for it. The Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in Hohenwald, Tennessee, it's the largest natural habitat refuge developed specifically to meet the needs of endangered elephants. And in I, Tennessee. It's, it, 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 it's in Tennessee, outside of Nashville. It's a nonprofit organization licensed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. So as a nonprofit, you can actually give money to this organization to help the elephants. They can send the Republican elephant to this elephant sanctuary, yes. <laughs> along with the uh, retired Barnum and Bailey uh, elephants that are being removed yes. from the circus. Although I think they have their own compound in Florida. Utilizing more than 2,700 acres, it provides three separate and protected natural habitat environments for Asian and African elephants. Our residents are not required to perform or entertain for the public. Instead, they are encouraged to live like elephants. And it's for abandoned elephants from zoos, zoos that go out of business. It's for retired circus elephants, small circuses that had an elephant or two, and now they just don't know what to do with it. I mean, what do you do with it? You can't sell it on eBay. <laughs> and Used it, elephant needs and, good home. And it's, and it's closed to the public. The website is elephants.com. I don't know why it's not elephants.org, but it's elephants.com, and it's the elephant sanctuary in Hohenwald, Tennessee. Does it say how many elephants reside there currently? Well, it says that they have 2,700 acres for more than a dozen former zoo and circus elephants uh, in a safe haven and the chance to live out their lives as they would have lived out in the wild, roaming and fostering companionship with the herd. Do African and Asian elephants get along? African and Asian elephants get yeah, along. Yeah. They, they like similar cuisine. Do they? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But they're, they're, they're happy together. I, w I would assume they're happy together. I, I don't know if I could tell the difference between an Asian elephant and an African elephant. One, one I think is slightly larger and the ears are different. Bigger, floppier ears. Well, and, again, I'm, and again, I'm in front of a microphone opining about something I have absolutely <laughs> no real information about. But as I said, the sanctuary is not open to the public, but 14 solar-powered Elecams, the <laughs> Elecams, enable virtual visits for classrooms and groups. Wow. But you can't go visit the elephants because well, they want them to feel okay. like they're in the wild. Not all, not all elephants need to be stared at. In fact, I think the Asian elephants don't like being stared at more than the African elephants. Again, I, I'm making that I read that up. somewhere. I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm making that up right off the top of my head. <laughs> also in the news, the, the Supreme Court is going through quite the uh, turmoil with the uh, passing of Antonin Scalia. And lo and behold, Clarence Thomas actually spoke for the first time in 14 years or something Let's like that. Let's ask a question from the bench. He asked a question during oral arguments for uh, a gun ownership for domestic violence offenders case. I, essentially, should domestic violence offenders lose their right to own a firearm? Why should they lose their right to murder their ex-wives and didn't kill their children? Yeah, exactly. And, and why isn't there a, a sanctuary in Tennessee for <laughs> abusers, <laughs> domestic abusers? They should be put in a 2,700-acre fenced-in um, Where they're then stomped on by elephants <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> It'll be new sentencing guidelines. We sentence you to, to spend the rest of, rest of your short life <laughs> naked in an elephant sanctuary running from their hooves. <laughs> <laughs> Elephants do run, and they run quite fast. Have you seen... I love animal videos. Animal videos are all over YouTube. Like wild animals or... Well, or just cute kitten, things that... Kittens I, in the dryer and stuff I like even that. like the kittens and... Not kittens in the dryer. Stop it. <laughs> well. Endearing, cute things. And there's a, there's a recent video that was posted about a man who was somehow involved with helping to rescue a baby elephant or an orphan to baby elephant. And this baby elephant still loves this man. So it's a video that man gets up in the morning, works at a sanctuary somewhere, not in Tennessee, but he'll get up in the morning and he'll call out the elephant by name. And this baby elephant comes running and running and running to him. And to show affection, the elephant wraps his trunk around the man's left arm and then they go for a walk together. 
And it was so heartwarming. It made me want to... You, you, I, I'm thinking you, of applying for a job at the Elephant Compound. You have nonprofit uh, work experience. You could yes. apply for work at the Elephant Sanctuary. Yeah, and we could do a new, a new podcast called Elephant One, day, weekly reports from the Elephant Sanctuary. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see a little a baby elephant come running to you and wrap its trunk around your arm and Makes, uh, take you for a walk. Yeah. Well, maybe this could happen. It I, could. Uh, Everything is possible. You're not getting any younger. No. Tick, tick, tick. Also in the political news, well, what, <laughs> this is hardly in the political <laughs> news. It occupies the political uh, news cycle 24-7. Donald Trump. Oh, um, But dear. I came across a piece of information about uh, Mr. Trump that maybe not everybody knows. Are you aware that long before he became the GOP presidential frontrunner, he tried his hand on Broadway? I, I, I am familiar with this as 19, a producer. In 1970, Trump's name appeared on the marquee. On the marquee, it was part of the agreement that he would give the backers money, but he wanted to be named at the Brooks Atkinson Theater. He wasn't singing or dancing. He was a producer, as we said, and had uh, his one and only credit on a Broadway show. At the time, he was fresh out of the University of Pennsylvania, and he decided to invest this $70,000 in a comedy called... Do you remember the name of the show? I don't. It was called Paris is Out by playwright Richard Seff. I will tell you what the plot of Paris is out is. Hortense and Daniel, (laughs) a married couple of over 40 years, they plan to embark on their first European vacation, but they have different outlooks on travel. Daniel is convinced he will be unimpressed by the other side of the pond, and his conditions for the trip are many and varied. No Paris, hence the title, Paris is out. No Venice, no shopping, no sightseeing, and no speaking in French, (laughs) which I think is always a good idea. Hortense, on the other hand, is full of life and eager to experience Europe fully, and and when Daniel embarrasses Hortense in front of family and friends, she announces that the trip is canceled. As her adult children try to convince her to forgive Daniel, Hortense must decide how she feels about the man with whom she has shared 40 years. Daniel, in turn, to save his marriage, must show how much he appreciates Hortense. Paris is Out is a, (laughs) this is from the press release, is a witty and heartwarming comedy about the triumphs and struggles of lifelong marriage. It closed after 96 performances. (laughs) The show got mixed reviews. The New York Times critic wrote, and I don't have the name of the critic, I pitied it more than I disliked it. (laughs) And the orchestra seats back then cost $6.50. Now they're like $175. Yes. $6.50. Seth, the playwright, said he seemed to be someone who would like to be in the theater, but I think he looked at it more like real estate, like a business venture. He was very sweet as a young man at 24. David Black had some good advice for the budding impresario. He said, you should go into real estate. (laughs) (laughs) Really? If Trump ends up in the White House, Seth said, I would have the honor and distinction of being the only person in history who ever had a play on Broadway produced by the president of the United States of America. It's a sad, sorry state of affairs, and I'm looking so forward to the Republican <laughs> convention when the riots break oh out God. in Cleveland. Woo-hoo! At least it's not Chicago. I thought of that. Can I tell you my quick Chicago riot Democratic convention story? We moved a lot because of my father's occupation. And we moved to DeKalb, Illinois in the summer in August of 1968. I was 12 years old. My father thought, well... Chicago's a hop, skip, and a jump away. Let's, let's drive to Chicago on this sunny Sunday afternoon after church. And we did. We weren't thinking, or maybe it, it wasn't widely known yet that this was going to happen. There were tanks and hundreds of uniformed troops in Grant Park. It, look, it looked like we were in, I don't know, Okinawa in 1944. And it was, it was absolutely frightening. And it was right before the Democratic Convention started. And I'll never forget the, the sight of seeing Grant Park, the first time I'd seen Grant Park, looking like a military encampment. Did they let you drive around? We were able to drive down Michigan Avenue. And I think my father thought, we need to get the heck out of here. What a lovely, pleasant Sunday drive. <laughs> right, yeah, my first exposure Chicago. to Chicago. I'm glad you made it out alive. 
Yeah. And well, and I had, I, I had friends, you know, later I would have friends who would talk about being downtown and, and protesting on Congress Parkway and then saying, well, you know, it's getting kind of late. I better go home. And by the time they got on the Ellen got home and turned on the TV, the police were beating the hell out of people on the streets. So frightening times. And you indeed, know, history can always repeat itself. While this talk about Trump and uh, what's happening is, is funny, it's also, it's more than a little frightening to me. There is a fear factor definitely going on. It should make for a very, well, interesting summer. I hope a safe summer, but an interesting summer. Hey, our producer has mentioned to us on a number of occasions that our listeners really would like to know more about us other than what they glean from our witty banter and pithy ban- remarks. Pithy remarks. You, you see these cards just randomly out on the table yeah, here? Yeah, I do. Why don't you draw one of those? And oh, let's, boy. Let's see if there's a question in there that might lead to something. Oh, this is a fantastic question. In your opinion, what is the best book title ever conceived? Just so we don't have to think too much, because I could think and think and think forever, but just so I don't have to think too much, I'm going to go with the one that comes to the forefront of my mind right away. Gone with the Wind. I was going to say From Here to Eternity. Also a good one. Gone with the Wind, also great. Gone with the Wind is so, it's completely descriptive of that entire 900 page novel or however it's pretty long do you know the first line of gone with the wind it was the best of times it was the worst of times (laughs) scarlett o'hara was not beautiful but men seldom realized this when they were as caught up in her charms as the tarleton twins why remember that i don't know Hmm. do you want to do another yeah in what or which activity would you like a lesson from an expert singing Singing. Singing. I want to take a master class with Barbara Cook. <laughs> and get and get through she's the master. 83. I know, she's not. She's 88. Oh, okay. And, okay. I would, and I, I'm not sure I could get through four notes of a love ballad without her reaching over and slapping me across the face. Four notes of what? A love ballad. Oh, a love ballad. <laughs> a love song. Ballad. Ballad. I see. <laughs> what, what would, what, what, with whom would you like to take a golf lesson, Gary? Yeah, I think it would have to be a golf lesson with an expert. I do love golf, and you obviously know me better than I know myself. Well, which, what, which expert? Who would it be? Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer, Tiger Lily? No, I think I'd like to take it with an expert golf teacher, not necessarily a golf player, because the great players aren't always the best teachers. They may be able to give you tips and hints and put you in the right direction, but a, a true golf teacher who does it for a living, uh, a coach, is, is a little bit different. There's a, there's a golf coach named Rick Smith, probably one of the top five in the world. He's very expensive, and he won't come to your house, and you can't, you can't find him, and you can't make an appointment. He coaches the pros, but I think it would be really fun to have a lesson with him. Well, and, and the power of broadcasting is perhaps he'll hear this podcast and reach out to you. Yeah, and he I've seen him on TV recently hawking some sort of golf product, so perhaps he might want to come on our show and hawk his golf product. I don't often read reviews of movies. We don't talk about the movies that much. We, we talk about the Oscars and our love we, of movies. We talk about memories of old movies. But I, I just couldn't resist this. In the New York Times yesterday, sort of a second or third stringer um, reviewer named Jeanette Katsoulis, and I've seen her stuff before, and she writes just short ones. But she reviewed a, what is touted to be one of those blockbuster movies. It's the new film in the, well, it's the Divergent series, and this one's called Allegiant. It's, uh, it's, they're, they're films of, a, of young adult novels, and it's sort of post-apocalyptic, a little like The Hunger Games. I saw the first one, but I didn't see the next one, and I, after this, I'm not going to see the other two. But she says, ill-defined and padded with tame special effects, these scenes are so lacking in narrative momentum that we can almost hear the hum of a plot idling in neutral. (laughs) (laughs) If she finishes off the review. A flaccid blend of eugenics, purloined children, memory-wiping gas, and laughably unlikely scuffles, Allegiant, directed by Robert Schwentke, 
offers a weak bridge to the series' conclusion. Whether audiences will still be allegiant after crossing it remains to be seen. Wow. <laughs> it's really beautifully <clears throat> written. That's a great paragraph. Roscoe, draw another card. All right. If you could visit any five countries in the world as part of a two-week vacation, which countries would you choose? Assume that you would have easy air travel throughout your trip. Wow. Egypt, Scotland, Russia, Sweden, and Japan. Did you practice this? Did I, you know I, this? I what, not, you, you, I, did, I, you handled that I, so beautifully. I, I have no prior knowledge of what's in this pile. You and I have never met, right? No. <laughs> We've never met. <laughs> Why am I in this room? <laughs> Why are my wrists taped behind my back to this chair? Nothing up my sleeve. <laughs> I would agree with you. I would go to Egypt if I felt... Let's just pretend that it would be safe and I wouldn't have armed guards on all four sides of me. I would want to be, the, be there for the opening of Nefertiti's tomb, which is about to take place any day. Have you been reading about that? I, I have. I it's have. quite exciting. I have. Would you be so, wanting to be carried in one of those uh, sedan chairs? Yes. <laughs> from Nefertiti's tomb? Yes. With veiled <laughs> curtains around it? Yes, to mm -hmm. keep out the giant mosquitoes. Uh, Egypt, anywhere in Africa where I could go on safari. Scotland, because you know I am of the Scottish people. I'll meet you in Scotland. And um, We'll play golf. What's the pretty place where Ryan's daughter was set? Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Ireland, yes. And do I have one more? Yes. Costa Rica. That's not very exciting, but it's supposed to be beautiful. It is supposed to be lovely. I just yeah. went, I went clean, clean air, clean water, pretty things to look at, and waters to swim in that have proven to be shark-free. Certified shark. Certified shark-free ocean. There's no such... Come to the Black Sea. There's no such thing as certified shark-free ocean. Heaven forfend. There, Heaven should, forfend. there should be no sharks in the ocean. There's been some, um, not to put too big a pun on this, but there's been some chatter on Broadway. There are, for the many of our listeners who aren't aware of it, there are a lot of Broadway-oriented websites that you can go to. Broadway.com, uh, all that chat, lots of places where you can find out insider news about what's going on or when things open or things that have opened and comments from people that have seen the show. Just a million, a million different things. Broadway.com is mostly informational. Do a lot of things like, oh, with the, here are the opening dates for the 2016-17 the season, or here's what's planned for the boards. But all of these websites, or most of them, also have a chat board attached to them where people like you and I, Roscoe, could go on, create ourselves a meme, whatever we want to call ourselves, and comment on whatever we want to comment on. Well, recently on Broadway.com, as I mentioned, uh, the chat board got a little bit snarky. And it got snarky over a new show that was uh, in the middle of rehearsals called Nerds. Now, this show has been around a little bit. Uh, it's done some workshops on the East Coast and has had a few changes of cast members, but generally they've all stayed with it. Uh, on March 8th, um, in the middle of rehearsing for what the cast thought was a really fantastic new Broadway musical called Nerds, they got shut down that day by the producer who announced that financing had fallen through. And literally, they were singing the lyric, <laughs> she says this, they were singing the lyric, live your dream, <laughs> when the producer walked into the room and said, I'm sorry, it's over, everybody pack up and go home. <laughs> your dream just died. You just can't make this stuff up. So this gets put, of course, on a Broadway chat posting. And, and a lot of people commented about how sorry they were. But there's also an annoying, petty, gossipy, catty, side to the business. I'm not sure you're aware of this, Roscoe. <laughs> that seems to creep up over and over again, and then it gets posted on these chat boards. So a young woman who was playing one of the leads in Nerds named Patty Murin, she decided that enough was enough. 
and she decided to take it to the chat board. And she wrote an open blog directed at all of these snarky comments. I'm going to read a couple of the comments that she thought were, well, just sort of out of bounds. She took some time to search the, as she calls it, the goddamn boards for any mentions of nerds. And she responded to them. One guy wrote, or one person wrote, JM226 wrote, the guy who wrote the music for this show is an executive at Jujamson. Jujamson is one of the larger theater owners in New York. Is the Longacre Theater in New York a Jujamson theater? If so, then that's how they got it, even with such a terrible show like this, implying that the show really sucks. But because the guy's an executive at Jujamson, he was able to get a theater and they were going to produce it. Now, that's so far from the reality of how things happen. And uh, another person wrote back and said, the Longacre is a Schubert house. And (laughs) this guy then (laughs) writes back, well, why wouldn't his own employer find a theater for his show? Well, Patty Murin was brilliant in her response, saying they're referring to a guy named Hal Goldberg, the, the composer who happens to work for the Jujamson organization. And this theater fan knows so much about how Broadway shows actually come to fruition that he or she assumed that all you had to do was work for a theater company. Jeez, <laughs> had I known that, I would have gotten a front office job over there years ago. <laughs> That's just a, a small example of one of the comments. Uh, Another one from Broadway Concierge. And one thing I hate about these chat rooms, these chat boards, is people come up with these code names. So you don't know who they are. You know, if you're going to make comments like this, use your real name. That's, that, that would be my um, advice. How lucky we are, this person writes, to be alive right now, to decide be- between seeing disaster or nerds on Broadway. <laughs> what, a ver- what a vibrant era of artistry in which we live. Well, I'm guessing that's sarcasm. And please note the requisite Hamilton reference. What a vibrant era of artistry in which we live. The guy's just trying to be clever and and witty. Um, I I feel bad, another person writes, for people like Patty Murin, Lindsay Mendez, and Rory O'Malley, who were three of the leads. They're, They're attached to this. They're all so talented, and they can't find better work. Well... Did you ever consider that perhaps this show might be good and that they couldn't find better work because they jumped at the chance to do this show because they liked the director and they liked the composer and that all of them in the cast had multiple projects on the horizons that they turned down and there aren't unlimited jobs out there on Broadway. Well, you know, just the other day I was sitting at home thinking, which of these five Broadway offers will I take up? Yes. I, I have one producer after another calling me, Mr. Merrick, I don't know. Let me talk to Mr. Todd. I'll get back to you. Even Kelly O'Hara isn't juggling musicals right. under her petticoats at King and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you partake of a chat room, I think, Roscoe. You've told me on a number of occasions that you're a a frequent goer to a certain chat room. I'm not sure that you contribute to it or if you're just a voyeur. Uh, sometimes I write in, and I, I will say these these chat rooms are useful, and they're very helpful for topics such as the only seat I can get is in the third row all the way on the right for this particular show at this particular theater. Will it be okay to sit here? So that's not information I'm going to find reading the New York Times or anyone else. So people are very helpful, and they can write and say, the stage floor is low, you'll be just fine, or you you won't be able to see two-thirds of the set. That stuff is very useful. And there used to be more of a gentleman's agreement where people would see shows in previews and write in and said, I saw the first preview of She Loves Me. I will withhold comment until they officially open on the performances, but let me tell you, the sets are beautiful and they're really headed in the right direction, and it was thrilling to hear the score in a live theater again. Something complimentary, but generic. And and, informative. And and informative and not specific, and hey, if I were you, I would get your tickets. But people can be really mean, and I find it unnecessary, and sometimes when there's very long links, Recently, someone said that they she loves me just opened on Broadway. The reviews were yesterday. So yesterday, yeah. fair game to talk about it. Very complimentary reviews. But a few weeks ago, on all that chat, someone wrote in and they said they they weren't sure that the subtext was all that it could have been in the song "Ice Cream," and that she should have indicated X Y Z about her relationship with someone. 
And someone else wrote back and said, what are you talking about? There is nothing in the lyrics to support that that should be part of the subtext. So it became 30 different posts with people in office saying, Jane, you ignorant slut. (laughs) But if you were any more moronic, I I surprised you could get your knuckles off the ground long enough to get into a theater seat. (laughs) And people become extremely vitriolic. So here's how I learned my lesson with all that chat. Irene Daly was an actress in the 60s. She had very few notable roles. And these were the notable roles. In the original production of The Subject Was Roses, she played the mother which Patricia Neal would later play to great acclaim in the film version. And when I was a kid, she had a great moment in a great film. Do you remember Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson? Of course. Which is a very popular movie. And there was a great scene where he goes to a restaurant, and he mm-hmm. wants to order breakfast, and he wants a side of toast. Mm-hmm. But there are no substitutions available. So he has a salty waitress who he's giving a hard time to. And he said, uh, well, here's what, I, I want my bacon, I want my eggs, and then can I get a tuna fish sandwich on toast? And then I want you to take the tuna fish sandwich, scrape the tuna fish off, and put it between your knees. <laughs> and the waitress is this salty, worn woman, and that's Irene Daly. I see. So it, the, I think maybe the only film in which she ever appeared, and, and the only notable thing that she ever did on Broadway is The Subject Was Roses. In, in the early 1970s, the same year that Five Easy Pieces came out, she played the mother in the effective gamma rays on the Man in the Moon Marigolds at the Ivanhoe Theater here in Chicago. And I believe I've referenced this before. In you the have, show that yes. You my know, father it's... took me to the show, and it, it opened a door to an entirely new world and was thrilling to me. I'm sure. And I, and I <laughs> So here's my point. I once wrote in because to all that chat because I remembered that Irene Daly was the aunt of Tyne Daly. And I thought that was so interesting. And? I was wrong. I was <laughs> grotesquely wrong. And did you get, did you get vilified in, the, yes. in, the, in print? Yes. This, this is where I got confused. Tyne Daly's father was an actor named John Daly, who had late in life, had, I think he was on Medical Center or something. He was a TV star in the 60s. Her brother's Tim Daly, who Correct. was on Wings and still mm-hmm. gets lots of work. Irene Daly was the sister of Dan Daly, who Mm. was the song and dance man Mm. in the movies in the 1940s. And that was their connection and why she was never in the movies and he was. And so I wrote about this on all that chat and it completely exposed myself for being an uninformed idiot. Well, someone, someone all but called me a moron. Well, actually, they did call me a moron. What are you talking about? (laughs) So uh, I was so humiliated and embarrassed by my innocent question about Irene Daly and her relationship to Tyne Daly that that was the last time I ever read in. So now you're just a voyeur. I'm I'm not a voyeur. I read. You used to read and Mm -hmm. gather information. This was, this was perhaps the snarkiest thing, and it had nothing to do with nerds per se, but Cats NY revival said don't they just have someone off stage singing her high note at the end of thank goodness now thank goodness is a number in wicked of which patty murren played that role okay and someone else writes back who, who wrote a mail handler 777 writes back no most glindas can hit it with the exception of a few name withheld name withheld and Patty Murin couldn't hit it. And usually a Glinda understudy that is on stage in her own track sings it instead. Well, <laughs> Mail Handler 777, Patty writes, I don't know where you get your bunk-ass information from because I hit the shit out of that high C <laughs> every night as well as every other note in the show. So suck it and go handle your email somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's an update to all of this, and, and she writes a lot more about it. And it actually made a notice in the uh, entertainment columns of the newspapers in, in New York, small columns, that this, um, page six. this thing that was going on, like a page six. Uh, Robert Diamond, the founder and creator of Broadway World, reached out to her within, well, you know, very shortly after the posting happened. And he immediately uh, opened up a dialogue that could lead to change for the better, 
and he rolled out a new feature, a report to mods button that exists on each individual post. It's been in development for a while, and Robert rushed it through to show how serious he is about improving the boards. So they're going to be monitoring these chat boards from now on and, uns and deleting or blocking the more snarky comments. I personally kind of get joy out of the snark. Why? One, one of the reasons we're in it's show a, business, but yeah. I, I, I can see that they it can go too far. Yeah. Well, and and I we got our comeuppance last year because uh, if you may remember, April May there's a Tony Award season was approaching, and American in Paris started previews on Broadway, and the comments on the chat board were howlingly funny about what a disaster the show was and how terrible it was and ridiculous and suddenly imposing the Nazis and a gay plot on this piece that everyone knew was horrible. So I was gobsmacked when the reviews came out and they were universal raves because you wouldn't know it from the bitter Roscoe-like people you, who you had seen know the show. It. I know. If that was all you read mm -hmm. and that was all you believed, you just you you wouldn't know it. And yeah. which is why I always say you, you've got to see it yourself to believe it. Yes. Now, do I believe that Hamilton is as good as everybody says it is? Yes, but. I, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's the greatest thing ever until I see it myself and I judge for myself. Boy, it is such a phenomenon. I mean, we don't need to tell our audience that, but I, I have people in my... This happened yesterday at work. I have a young 27-year-old works with me and he came to my office to ask about Hamilton. And I said, oh, are you familiar with it? Do you like it? And he said, I'm obsessed with it. I can't quit listening to it. I, I'm not sure he's ever seen a musical. So this has opened a big new door to him. You know what else I have never seen? Rent. No. Can you believe it? How can that be? I, I, I don't know. How can that be? I've seen part of the movie. I've seen numbers from Rent on various awards shows and variety shows, but I've never seen the whole show. Ironically, it's being done about two miles down the road from our studio here, and I've gotten us tickets to go see it yes. in a couple of weeks. Yes, and in one of our favorite theaters. In one spaces. of our favorite theaters, the Theo Ubiqué, yes. which is as big as this dining room table. <laughs> and where, where the knock, actors knock into you, trying to get on and off the stage. <laughs> and then Mimi, who dies, then comes to serve your after-show drinks. Yes. <laughs> May I take your bill for you, sir? I'm going to pull another one of these nifty question cards out of here and see if uh, there's anything on here that will tickle our fancy. If you could change professions for a week, which would you choose? Is this a family show? What would I be? Just for a week. Oh, I've got the answer. I would be a legitimate faith healer with actual powers to cure people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That cancer's going away. It's going away. It's shrinking. I can feel it. I can feel it. It's, it's, the it's devil, not there the anymore. The devil's out of me. The de I can walk. I can walk. Will I be able to play the piano after this? <laughs> That's funny. I couldn't play it before. <laughs> I, I don't know why you can say things like that. I find them amusing because I know exactly where you're headed and it's corny as Kansas in August. All right. What would your profession be? I think I would be a custom furniture maker and make, make chairs and tables and turn table legs and, you know, not bookcases so much. Bookcases are boring, but make fine pieces of furniture for, for people, handmade. I could absolutely see you doing that. Yeah. And moreover, I can see you showing up, for example, at the Dakota if we have an appointment with um, Yoko Ono, who needs a, <laughs> yes. a, new, a new buffet for a new her. A new credenza. A new credenza for and her I, living and room. I'm, and I'm sort of covered up to my elbows in sawdust yes. from, from being at the lathe machine yeah, all that. And you're asking her a series of insightful questions about how exactly she wants the credenza to turn out. You'd be a very caring cabinet maker. I, I think I, I think Jesus, I would be. Jesus was a carpenter to... It's sort of our theme this this week as we Palm Sunday and Easter. Yeah, but if you read that card to Jesus, he'd say, "I think I'd like to be the Messiah for <laughs> for a week. I'd like to live past thirty <laughs> three. <laughs> <laughs> and if you asked him in the chocolate uh, 
Last Supper, he'd probably have the same answer. Yes. <laughs> I wish I were bittersweet. <laughs> Instead of just vanilla. Yeah, you know, speaking of New York, there is a new restaurant that I read about, and it's called Mr. Donahue's. And I don't think we're going there, but I, 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 I read about it. It is exclusive, exclusive New York City restaurant virtually impossible to get into. And the biggest reason it's impossible to get into is that it has one four top and five stools at a bar. Really? So there's only nine places and they serve simple, well-made meals like roast beef and Swedish meatballs. Mm. It sounds like my kind of place. I also saw a story on a short documentary show, a news, a news magazine program, about a kid who's a student at Columbia University in New York. He had a penchant for cooking. And to create a little extra money, he decided to offer to cook dinners for groups of students, and they would pay for them. And he would just have them to his house at a dining table like this, like a dining table of six. He had a, a utility kitchen, nothing much. But he would craft these magical dinners for people. And he now has 2,500 reservations to come to his house and have dinner. He said, it's gotten a little out of control. I didn't expect to have a whole business of cooking for people in my house. I suspect that by now the New York City Department of Health has shut him down because you can't be serving people and asking them I, to pay for meals. God, for, without God forbid that people license. have fun and do something interesting know, without having to be licensed and bureaucratized. But the do. fun will only last a certain amount of time. You could do that. Maybe we could, you know, the old supper club where you'd show up and have a nice fancy meal and then you'd yeah. listen to... Uh, Mel Torme sing for 55 minutes. Yeah. Maybe we could do that here and you could serve people a nice gourmet meal and then we put on the headsets and they can watch us do a live podcast. Exactly. And we'd have, you know, laughter in the background. <laughs> I wanted to touch on one booth one experience we had this week because not a week or two can go by without us having a booth one experience. We were invited as uh, press guests to the latest Chicago Shakespeare Theater's production of Othello. We had great seats, and they give us a press kit, and, oh, you're treated like a little bit of royalty. So we, of course, ate that up. This Othello played very strongly on the military aspect of Othello's plot, and that he's the supreme commander of a group of army regulars that have gone to war and now have ensconced themselves on Cyprus to manage Cyprus while the government is being reorganized. Uh, so it all takes place there, and all the men are all in army uniforms, and there's M16 rifles, and everybody's got a pistol, and everybody's got a knife. <laughs> Of course they have knives. It's 1266. <laughs> we all have knives. Why Desdemona is is there in flimsy outfits wandering through the the army camp all the time, I wasn't exactly sure. In fact, Roscoe in the second act when she shows up after intermission, why, why is she wearing that flimsy blue pantsuit that looks like Florence Henderson on the Merv Griffin show? <laughs> <laughs> Did I, you get I, that I, I, part? No, I don't know. Or the what, what's the Hispanic woman's name? The character? Yeah. Bianca. Bianca. <laughs> Bianca, who's, who's Cassio's girlfriend. Right. Who's supposed to be a local on the island, but she comes out. Well, I, I mean, at the when she started speaking, I thought, why is there a Puerto Rican? Yeah, and I, she, she had a bare midriff, and it apparently had been doing uh, 500 sit-ups a day since she was 12. She was the fittest Bianca you've ever seen in your entire life. Yeah, and she had she had an imperceptible accent. It might have been wanting to be Italian, but I heard it as sort of Puerto Rican. In fact, I turned to you at one point and I said, and you said Cheetah Rivera never works. <laughs> <laughs> she was actually pretty good. She was I good. liked her very much. All of the guys, because they're all in the army, 
they all get some opportunity to take some portion of their clothes off at some point, either like in the wash basin area or while they're getting ready to go to bed and they take their T-shirts off. Anytime they don't spend acting on stage, they clearly spend working out in the gym because these guys were about the buffest group of actors I've ever seen in a show, maybe outside of like Rocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, they're all. there must be some new rule in drama schools these days that you must work out and be built like a brick shithouse. Yeah. Also, pet peeve, I hate tattoos. I hate tattoos on actors even more. So I think if you're going to be an actor, your body is your instrument and you shouldn't mark it up with tattoos of iguanas and fish. <laughs> well, there are, there are makeups that people use to cover up tattoos when they're playing roles that don't require that. This was, again, uh, they, they played up the military aspect of it, and it was completely modern. I mean, people had cell phones, there were computers, all kinds of modern conveniences going on, and, and that was, I thought that was very well done. None of that drew me out of the play at all. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is, they're really going for it, and they went for it all the way. They did not pull any punches. They said, this is how it's going to go. Not to, not to sound like I'm chatting on all that chat. We're going to Shakespeare. I want to see pretty period costumes. I want velvet and silk and fur and rich colors, and instead I'm subjected to camouflage, tin, barbed wire, smoke, men running down the aisle with large guns. Army scaring, boots. Army boots scaring me. So visually, visually, I was disappointed because I wanted my eyes to be massaged by beauty and color. Mm. And instead, Mm. I felt like I was watching outtakes from The Hurt Locker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know if Othello is the play that you go to to be overwhelmed by frou-frou and color and lovely costumes. I, I, it's, it's a darker piece. Mm. And the, the whole military aspect of it in general lends it to be a, of, of a starker quality. I saw James Earl Jones and Christopher Plummer do this play some years ago on Broadway. Mic drop! <laughs> <laughs> and it was done in a very simple style. There were hanging curtains with ropes that would make the curtains move in a way that created a room, a backdrop, or just an overhead design. And the the costumes were of an indeterminate style, somewhat Mediterranean-like without being, you know, Mediterranean. I I thought that, as usual, Chicago Shakespeare did a bang-up production. I mean, there were dollars on that stage. Uh (laughs) There were dollars on that stage everywhere. The performances pretty much were quite good. You and I did not care particularly much for the interpretation of the Iago. Strangely, I felt slightly unmoved. I, I, I wanted to be caught up in the pathos a little bit more. It it left me feeling just a little bit too distant from the story. Just a little bit. I understand. And, you know, as we talked about last night, a tough, tough script, tough show. And very, you know, some of the the problems are just inherent in the script. You can't choke Desdemona to death over a period of five minutes. And then after she's dead with a perhaps a fractured neck, have her suddenly spring to life and she have goes, yet, yet another goes, monologue. Uh, uh, and Othello <laughs> says, what, alive? And he, and he goes after her again, you know, to make sure he finishes the job. Oh, he used a pillow this time. Yes, well, he choked her and then used a pillow, yeah, and, and yeah. it went on for And a while. even then, she comes back to do 16 lines with, with Amelia. Yes, and then one of the things that took us out of the show had nothing to do with this production but with our friend George from Midlothian, because at the very end of the show is Desdemona is laying dead. An actor I've never noticed before suddenly steps forth and says, heaven forfend. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you and I, I think, laughed out loud. I, I, I definitely laughed out loud, and I think I was uh, vilified by most of the audience for that, <laughs> because it was one of the more dramatic moments. Yes, I, the, but I, it just... Don't it just giggle at be. the high point in the show. Although the man behind me 
laughed out loud while Desdemona was being choked to death, and I'm not sure what that was about. What were your thoughts on this, Gary? They did something at the show that I've never seen before at a play, seen at the Lyric Opera. The show was open captioned. So in the upper... Which is a new thing. Which is a new thing. So in the upper... This, this particular performance, and they explain in the program that it's part of their effort to be all-inclusive so that people who have limitations of hearing, sight, mobility, whatever, can enjoy the theatrical experience. So they thought at this particular show we'll experiment with what they called open captioning, which they must have... Oh, that would be the opposite of closed captioning. So, so everyone must be subjected to the open yeah. captioning. What did you think of that? Did it distract you? It, it, I thought it would distract me. It, it did not. In fact, I, I utilized the screen a couple of times, not because I couldn't understand what was being said, but because I wanted to see how the translation was going, if it was exactly right um, and how fast it was going, and I wanted to see how it was. And I'm glad I did because they did a little survey afterwards where you could mark in how did, how did you think it went? Did you think it went too fast, too slow? Would you like it? I, I would have preferred the font to be in some... Very fancy, like, yes. you know, illuminated, folio. Man, illuminated manuscript yes. writing would be fantastic. That would give a challenge. Yeah, I thought it was spot on. I thought it was it, whoever was, were, was running the projector, it was perfectly coordinated. And I'm a little deaf, and sometimes I couldn't hear. And if I couldn't quite make out what they were saying, if I glanced at the screen fast enough, I could say, oh, that was the line. So it was helpful. If you're going downtown to see Othello at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Well, one doesn't exactly go downtown. One, one goes halfway into Lake Michigan <laughs> to see true. a show at Shakespeare. But if you're going to go down and have dinner first, may I recommend looking into, well, two of our favorite places, which we've talked about on the air a number of times, The Gage and Acanto, both uh, owned and operated by our friend Billy Lawless. He is opening a third, well, it's actually a fourth restaurant now, called the Beacon Tavern. The Beacon Tavern is going to be located at 405 North Wabash Avenue. Roscoe, that's just around the corner from your normal place of work. It's going to be in space that is currently occupied by the Trump building, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. or they're sharing some sort of yeah. area. Yeah, 4, 405 is the old address of the Sun-Times. And yeah, the, yeah. The ginormous Trump building is built on the site of the old Sun-Times building. Yeah, chef partner Chris uh, Garonsky have enlisted oh. executive chef Bob Bronsky, and, uh, and they're going to create a seafood-heavy roster of eats. And again, it's called Beacon Tavern. And again, they'll have spicy fried redfish sandwiches and a fish and chips made with Dover sole. Mm. Very, uh, that's very upper class. Fried chicken with hot honey sauce and Taleggio cheeseburgers with sweet and sour pickles. I cannot wait till this opens. It should be very, very soon. It's going to be this spring, and we'll be offering a $100 gift card, as we have with other Billy Lawless restaurants, to this restaurant, again, called Beacon Tavern, somewhere around May 1st, so you might want to listen in. It's time to move on to our Kiss of Death segment, Roscoe. Okay. Not Frank Sinatra Jr.? No, this may be somebody you know. Uh, Martha Wright. Martha Wright. I'm looking at you blankly. No, I can't think of that. Is who played well over 1,200 performances in leading musical roles on Broadway, nearly all of them as a replacement for Mary Martin. She died on March 11th at the age of 92. Miss Wright was not exactly a household name, maybe not even in the households of musical theater aficionados. She was nonetheless, by some standards, a genuine star, a coloratura soprano who personified the pert appeal of the 1950s ingenue. She appeared on Broadway in only a handful of shows, but twice she followed Miss Martin in a Tony Award-winning musical. In June of 1951, she took over as the Navy nurse Ensign Nellie Forbush in South Pacific, singing, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair, and I'm in love with a wonderful guy. She eventually performed the role more than a thousand times on Broadway exceeding the 868 played by Miss Martin. Wow. She played the role more times on Broadway than Mary Martin. And she closed the show in January of 1954. Seven years later, 
After Miss Martin bowed out of the role of Maria Rayner, the uh, rebellious postulant turned stellar governess in The Sound of Music, Miss Wright filled the role from the fall of 1961 into the summer of 1962. In all, she spent more than three years as the leading female performer in two of the theater history's most beloved musicals. Wow. And no one knows her. And I didn't even know her name. I'm, a, I'm ashamed of myself. Martha Lucille Viderecht was born in Seattle on March 23rd in 1923 to Lucille Wright, whose name she seized on as a professional, and Frederick Viderecht, a plumber, uh, electrician, and general handyman, who was also a well-trained tenor. <laughs> aren't, aren't they all? In 1947, she won a slot in the chorus of a visiting musical, visiting up in Seattle, Washington, called Up in Central Park, which returned to New York and closed almost immediately. And it's uncertain whether she appeared on Broadway in the show, though some published reports suggest she did. In those times, you know, it was all very... Sometimes they didn't keep the cast records all as, as well as mm-hmm. that. So it went there, they know, in 47. Whether she was ever on stage in it, they're not exactly sure. So Miss Wright, she sang on the radio and television in New York. She also appeared in a musical ghost story called... Great to be alive, <laughs> which closed after 52 performances in 1950. We ought to look that up. That it's be... great to be alive. It's, but it's a ghost story. It's, it's probably the ghosts singing. It's, Even it's, though I'm not, because yeah. I'm a ghost. <laughs> Playing in supper clubs in New York and elsewhere, she came to the attention of Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, and uh, she was performing at the Palmer House. In Chicago, Illinois, when she auditioned for South Pacific and chose to replace Miss Martin as Nellie Forbush rather than take another role that she'd been offered, that of the determined wife and mother, Katie Nolan, in the musical adaptation of Betty Smith's turn-of-the-century novel, (gasps) A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. The choice Miss Wright said at the time was enough to give me ulcers, but in the end, Nellie Forbush was more the kind of part I wanted to do. She was concerned about being measured against Miss Martin, and she was, but she came off probably as well as she could have. Miss Martin is a pretty young lady from Seattle who has a pleasant voice and a charming personality, Brooks Atkinson wrote in the New York Times. She does very well by the part. If Miss Martin had never been in it, everybody would probably be very happy that Miss Wright's cheerful singing and sunny performing were in it. In 1954, Miss Wright starred on television in her own 15-minute musical called The Martha Wright Show on Sunday nights on ABC. In 55, she married Mike Minucci, a restaurateur, and by the time she left The Sound of Music, she was more focused on family life than on her career. An album she recorded for RCA Victor in 1960 was titled Love, Honor, and All That Jazz, Songs for After the Honeymoon is Over. Oh, get get us to eBay. We need to find that. Martha Wright, actress on Broadway, 92, uh, took over for Mary Martin in two of the iconic roles in Broadway history. I think we have time to do one more card here, Roscoe, oh before we say sayonara. Gary? Yes, Roscoe. What would your dream house look like? Be as descriptive as possible. I think it would be one of the larger versions of one of those munchkin houses in The Wizard of Oz. Really? <laughs> yeah, with all the little <laughs> turrets, and you could sleep on the roof in like a uh, in like a bat and like a, a nest, and the doors would be round and uh, they'd be all white stucco. But it'd be big. It'd be it'd be like adult size, wow. and and there'd be a putting green out back. Lots of, of course. Lots of gables and lots of, you know, lit- not, not an 18 hole golf course. Lots of flowers and flower pots all over the place. Boy, this is tough. Part of it is where do you want to live? Could I live on Central Park close to Broadway in a really big, f- fancy place? I want comfort. The, I'm thinking of Gene, you know, Gene Harlow in the, those MGM movies. Everyone had white bedrooms and everything was white. You know, you had white bearskin rugs. I always liked the idea of that, but you know, I couldn't live there five minutes without getting coffee on the couch. <laughs> so it has to be something easily cleaned, extremely comfortable, a big colored TV, a big fireplace, servants. I was going to say servants, Roscoe. Servants. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People to hoist me off of, out of my easy mm-hmm. chair at night. You sound like you could be flexible as to what it looks like. I could be flexible. But you're 
putting on lots of things that you want it to have in it, like servants, servants. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and white towels. Well, I know we're, I know we're running late, but let, let me try to change. I'm going to try to change my answer here. Island living on artificial islands. Have you seen this gigantic structures that float in the middle of the ocean? I don't know how they get electricity or fresh running water, but they're huge. And of course, it's, it's just you. So it's all, it's all open and open air and you have swimming pools and waterfalls and uh, you get to and from your island by helicopter. It you looked like pretty and it looked really comfortable and how beautiful that would be and how, how you know, talk about not being encroached upon. It's a long way from Broadway, sweetheart. It's a long way from Broadway and very close to perhaps a large hungry shark sensing that there's a big mamu sitting on a recliner next to his swimming pool. <laughs> so you could just jump out and take a big chomp off his head and then jump back in the water. Oh, yes. The shark pipeline would be abuzz with the fact that you've moved into an, to an, an oceanfront <laughs> B&B. That damn shark pipeline. <laughs> It's been great to get to know you through Chat Pack, Roscoe. Uh, much like we get to know our guests a little bit, we'll have to do a little bit more of this uh, from time to time, wouldn't yes, you say? A little check-in, little bar setting. This is who we are. This has been Who We Are, and this has been Booth One. Uh, I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and alongside my companion... Roscoe, <laughs> who is getting to know you, getting to know all about you... Getting to like you. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. Hope you like me. We hope to see you again on Booth One. Take care.